Um, in this time, we are continuing in our focus on a summer reformation. And we're looking today at one of the solas of the reformation, scripture alone. I believe on your bulletins, which I failed to grab one this morning, you have the solas on the front cover and we're reminding you of each one each week. Is that correct? Do you see them? So, so far, we focused on grace alone and then faith alone, Christ alone, and scripture alone today and next week. And then we will round off this series by focusing on God's glory alone. So each of these things have a Latin way of saying them. The point is not to get hung up on getting them all right, but to know that when you back up and see the foundation, there's scripture out of which these things spring. And the only reason we highlight them is because the word of God gives them to us. So we want to go to God's word today and we want to understand the role of scripture alone in giving us all that we need for the faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. And all of this is to God's glory alone. I want you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you will, to the passage of scripture that Isaac read to us this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'd like to begin by reading verses 14 and 15 once again. For this week... And next week, we will be in this passage. This week, I will focus exclusively on verses 14 and 15. And next week on 16 and 17, taking a measured, careful pace through these verses in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I believe they are some of the most important verses we have in God's word to help us as New Testament believers to understand what scripture alone means for us as we walk with the Lord. So follow along as I read once again, verses 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Pray with me now. Father, thank you for the majesty of your word. When it speaks, you speak to us. I believe that. And it's the only authority I have as I stand here to present anything helpful to those gathered in your name. For those who have come here today wondering what church is all about and why we focus on the Bible and, and how it can help, and if it even helps. I pray that today they would see the scripture for what it is, and that you would remind us who believe and have learned and have been firmly convinced of the truth and the usefulness of scripture, that you would draw us into worship of Jesus Christ today and compel us to keep reading. For your glory, we ask this, and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Why was scripture emphasized in the time of the Reformation? As I've already shared, we can't read scripture without seeing the emphasis on scripture alone as being such an important doctrine to carry us through the Christian life. I am impressed after having read through a lot of Reformation history this summer 
and reading the lives of the reformers to see that man after man that I read about, those who led this reformation, did so at great personal cost to themselves and at great risk as they presented their ministries because there were people and institutions and leaders, even the popes of the time that wanted these men dead. But what compelled them to keep pressing forward? What compelled them to reform the church at the time and to highlight the errors that were within it? It was their unshakable confidence that scripture, God's word, was absolutely authoritative, absolutely true. And they staked their lives on it. Martin Luther, one of the more quotable reformers, which you'll hear more about Martin Luther if you come back this Wednesday night in the hub to our Fabulous Five presentation where Jake Bishop will be talking about him. Please come to that. I'm looking forward to it. And I'll try not to steal all the Martin Luther quotes that he will share with us then. But there was a time in the early years after he nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the chapel in Wittenberg, or Wittenberg, if you want. There was a time when all of those who were trying to understand why this monk was raising such a ruckus within the Roman Catholic Church, they brought him to several diets. These were not attempts to help him lose weight after drinking all the German beer. These were, these were opportunities where he would have the opportunity to confess where he was wrong in his teaching from the Bible and come back into line with the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. The funny thing was, the more of these diets that they brought him to and the more they threatened his life and even tried to take it from him, the more it drove him into scripture and the more he was driven to scripture, the more that he saw the glories of Jesus Christ. And this is what he said at one time. He said, a simple layman, that's just a, a man in the church who has no background in religion. A simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. And the same thing is true today. A man or a woman who does not bear any title whatsoever, but knows Christ and is armed with his scripture, that man or that woman is to be believed above any pope or any council without it. And this is the heart of the Reformation. The scripture is our authority. It's what guides us through life. And it stands to reason then that all these reforms that were happening, the passion for Christ that was ignited, the changes that were happening in people's lives could all be traced back to convictions about God's word. And it stands to reason then that where there is little passion for Christ, few reforms and no desire for revival, it's a deadly absence of conviction about God's word. You know, when Paul wrote the letter to Timothy, it was a time period when God's word was under attack, when it was just being written in the New Testament and the Old Testament at the time was always under attack by ungodly people that were actually coming into the church. Their goal, the ungodly people, we learn about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, which I'll summarize for you, is that they came into the church hopeful to subvert the ministry of God because they either claimed to have some special revelation from God or they took the written word of God and without having Christ 
in their lives, shaping the way that they read it and thought about the word, they twisted it and used it for their own ends. And what ended up happening, you can read there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, they would even capture some people and whisk them away into ungodliness. And Paul says, these are the last days. If they were the last days around 2,000 years ago, we're still in them. And ungodliness will continue and continue. What is Timothy to do in counter to that? What helped the reformers to break into that ungodly culture of their day? What can help us to continue to follow Christ today in the ungodly culture in which we live? It's the same thing that Paul called Timothy to. And what I will do today is to share verses 14 and 15 in three points. They won't appear here, but I'll try to be clear and help you know them. Because I, I do know this, and a main theme of this passage of scripture is that our convictions about God's word have direct bearing on how long we will last in the Christian faith. They really do. And so today I wanna to talk about the call to continue in the scriptures, number one. Secondly, the convictions about the scriptures that will sustain your life of endurance. And thirdly, a challenge to us in this contemporary culture as we apply those things. So number one, the call to continue in the scriptures. Look down with me, if you will, at verse 14 again. It starts this way, but as for you, and this is Paul highlighting again verses one to nine and said, he had just told Timothy what the ungodly culture of the day would be like. And but is a contrast word. So when you see that, you know something has come before and a contrast or a comparison is being made. In this sense, it's a contrast. Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, don't be like that. But here is how you are to continue. Here's how you're to last. Here's how you're to endure. And that's what 2 Timothy is really all about. As Paul ends his life in the last prison before his execution, he's calling on Timothy to endure. And here's how he says it in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. So in this first point, the call, really the only command in this text is this, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed. Now my practice when I, when I read and when I try to understand a passage of scripture is to write it out by hand. Some of you may find that practice also to be helpful. I just have to slow down when I really wanna understand something in God's word. Reading it over and over again helps, but sometimes I'm thinking about what's for lunch. Sometimes I'm too sleepy from what I just had for breakfast. Um, so the point that helps me the most is to write it down. I wrote down this whole passage. It's on the board in my office. If you'd like to stop by, I'll, I'll show you how I go through a passage if you're wondering how in the world I come up with any of this. I, I got hung up on this word continue and I wanted to know what does it mean? I did take some Greek back in seminary um, didn't get the best of grades, but at least I learned some principles. And I found a word that seemed familiar to me. And so I did a check about where else it appears in scripture. This word continue, it's the Greek word meno or meno. Those who are just in Greece, please don't critique me on my Greek, okay? I found this word in John 15. And I want you to listen to familiar verses of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and try to pick out where this word continue or meno might appear. Jesus said in John 15, 
Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's verse 4. Verse 10, in the next breath, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So what do you think the Greek word meno and our English word continue in 2 Timothy 3 appears as there in John 15? Any guesses? Abide, you're correct. And so the point in 2 Timothy 3 is not just to do the next thing in a series. It's not just, hey, continue by following the next step. It's more this, this meaning that you had an action that started at a certain point and the Greek word meno might have a conclusion after a series of things that you continue to do but in the case of Jesus back in John 15 telling us, Mano, abide, he wasn't talking about something that ended, but something that we keep doing. It's a relational term. And in 2 Timothy 3, the very thing that Paul is saying to Timothy is to continue in what he's learned. Okay, so that's the word of being a disciple underneath somebody else. It's taking steps to get knowledge and information it's that word that, that helps us to learn even as we're trying to train up the next generation, something fills us with passion. We wanna help them understand it. We're highlighting the nuances of it, helping them to see all sides of it so that these younger kids will say, wow, and get excited about it too. This is what Paul is saying, Timothy, you've had this experience. You've grown up this way. You've been a disciple and you've been firmly convinced, firmly believed what the scripture says is true. Now he's telling him, abide in it, continue in it. It's a relationship. Somehow our relationship with Jesus Christ depends on our view of this book. This is the call to continue. And I wanna note here in a particular way that applied to Timothy that doesn't necessarily apply to us all. Paul highlights his upbringing and said, I remember that you have learned this from some people. And Paul wasn't just talking about himself. Back in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he highlighted Timothy's mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. And he said, at that point, I saw that the faith that existed in your mother Eunice and your grandmother Lois, now I am really convinced is in you too. Now the picture that we're, we're painted here that Timothy did not grow up in a home where his father was reading the scriptures with him regularly. And most people believe that's because Timothy had a Gentile father who was not well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures and possibly not even a believer. But he had a mother and a grandmother who faithfully taught him the Old Testament scriptures. We know it was the Old Testament because he didn't have the New Testament yet. So I just wanna pause here for a moment and I want to say that a part of this message today is calling us who are of older generations to look back at the children who are just behind us and to purpose, to expose them to and read to them and enjoy with them the word of God. For those of you who are doing that, praise be to God. You know, back, back in the Reformation time, one of the things that the word of God did in the lives of Martin Luther John Calvin, Zwingli, all these men who were leading is that it prompted them to be better stewards of the word of God in their homes. A few hundred years after the Reformation, there was a guy 
named Matthew Henry. You may have read his commentary for free, not even knowing who the guy is, but just knowing if you typed in a Bible passage plus commentary, boom, you've got Matthew Henry always popping up. One of the times that he was talking about discipleship in the home and reading scripture to your kids, he made a telling statement. And this is what he said. Regarding the home, he said, here must the reformation begin. Here in the home, the reformation must begin. And he hope you have a revival for future generations. And he hope you have of others carrying on with them the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and taking it to others. It will come from time spent in the word at home. Now, towards the end of the sermon, I'll, I'll confess to you some of my half starts and poor attempts and also the graciousness of God as I've tried this and continue by God's grace to pour myself into it. But all I will say right now is thank you to those of you who are passionate to share God's word with the next generation. Those of you who are grandparents, moms and dads, even people who are surrogate parents or step family to others, all that you can do that would be the most precious heritage those kids can take with them in the future is to give them the word of God and to pray for them that God would take it and work in their lives. So Timothy is commanded to continue in the scriptures. So I want to highlight next the convictions about the scripture. And what I want to try to do is tell you all of them and then give you several passages of scripture that will help you see how the scripture works, all right? So in this text of scripture, as I continue to look at it and look at it this week, I saw that what Paul was doing was this. He was bolstering, strengthening Timothy for a life that would have to continue in the face of adversity in the world. And he would have to just set his heart on Christ and continue reading God's word for a long time knowing that persecution would come and that Satan and his emissaries in the lost world would not gravitate towards that. They would hate Timothy and even persecute him. How was he to remain convicted to keep going? Here are the convictions about scriptures in the second place that I see at play in this text of scripture. Look back at verse 14. He tells Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. That word believed is where we get our word conviction or convinced. You might have in your, your version of the Bible what you are convinced of. And so he is saying, here's what you're convinced of, Timothy. He says, how, verse 15, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That term was not something that Paul used often. This phrase only really occurs here in the sense that it's meant to convey something about God's word. And it refers back to the Old Testament. Now that was all Timothy had growing up. The, the image that we get is that he was acquainted with the sacred writings. In this sense, being acquainted with them didn't mean that at first he owned them all himself. But when you're acquainted with something, you're brushing up against it. It's coming into your sphere of normal everyday life. And this is what happened to Timothy. Paul says to him, you were acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, at this time, Paul knew that these Old Testament writings, and even some that he was writing, and that Peter was writing, and that the gospel writers wrote, 
We're all being included in this sacred writing category. But I want you to know that even before this time, the books that we regard as the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, these were already accepted and solidified into a canon, right? That doesn't mean a thing that shoots out metal balls. Into a canon really means a rule or a straight line, right? The, the Jews measured what belongs in the words of God, what fits according to the internal testimony of these books and what gets included into what ultimately will be the book that we present to the people of God for the worship of God. That's the canon, the, the line, where everything fits, the straightness of it. What we now regard as the Old Testament fits in that. And largely, the Jewish people that you know who don't know Christ will still regard what we call the Old Testament and just call that their sacred scriptures. They don't have faith in the New Testament just yet. But we know that's where our heritage comes from. And Paul is highlighting to Timothy, you encountered that all the time. Now, again, I'm going to give you the convictions all in a row and then give you some scriptures to highlight them. Another thing that I see about this, look at verse 15 again. He says, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you. Now, I'm going to pause there for a minute. And conviction two is this. Scriptures are so unique. And this is what they do. They change us. The scriptures have inherent, intrinsic power to change us. They're not just inspiring words. You know, you could read a classic piece of literature and be inspired. It can make you feel good. It can lift you up. It can help you go out and help other people. But it can't change you. It can't fundamentally change you. We're so skeptical in our world today that change is even possible. We're told just to embrace who we are to not try to change things, but just kind of adapt to them, just to kind of adjust to them. But the Bible says its role in your life is to address your fundamental need of change. Change is necessary, and without it, you're condemned. I'm condemned. And that's why it says it changes us from being fools to wise, ultimately from being lost to being saved. This is our conviction about Scripture Again, I'll give you a, a passage of scripture in just a moment to help you understand this. And finally, the conviction that I see here is that scriptures are able to make, like they did Timothy, they're able to make him wise for salvation through faith. Just blind faith? No, faith that is anchored to Christ Jesus. The scriptures lead him to embrace what it's saying by faith and to understand and embrace Jesus Christ. And so the third conviction I see here that Paul has about scripture is that all scripture, and he's talking about the Old Testament, leads us to Jesus Christ. It's all about him. And if you want to understand a helpful principle and a, and a short saying to help you remember some of these things. Remember this, if you will. The Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed. And the New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. Old, concealed. New, revealed. But it's all about Jesus. Now, how does that all work together? 
want you to go back to a couple of passages of scripture, if you will. Start in the book of Proverbs. Turn back to Proverbs. I don't have page numbers, but it comes after the book of Psalms. Proverbs chapter one. I've been reading the book of Proverbs so thankful for what I have been gleaning from there week after week after week as I read it. But I have to admit, the book of Proverbs was an enigma to me for so long. I read it and people told me to read a proverb every day. You know, you got one for most days of the, of the, the week of a month. And so just read a proverb a day. That's good counsel. But if you don't know the purpose or the place of Proverbs in the whole canon of the Old Testament as it points you to Jesus, you're gonna get frustrated. Now, the things written in the Proverbs are not commands for you to do so that you will have a successful life. If you wanna live that way, just go to, go to Amazon and buy the local bestseller Christian books that are on there and they'll help you live the best that you can live right now and mostly you don't even have to believe in Christ to do those things. But the book of Proverbs doesn't work that way. It calls you to a disciplined life. And look at chapter one with me, if you will. It, it gives you where it comes from. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. So right away, we know that a lot of what's coming to us is gonna sound like a riddle to us. And in another sense, these are being spoken to youth. So those who are young need guidance, but also the intent of these is to help us be wise. Now remember in 2 Timothy chapter three, Paul told Timothy, he said, remember to continue in what you have learned and been firmly convicted of, knowing from whom you've learned them and how from a child you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you, what was that word? Wise. In one sense, I'm gonna share something with you. The book of Proverbs is given to introduce you to Jesus Christ to help you know his character and to know that what you start out in life with as and what I start out in life as is a fool. You ever thought of yourself as a fool? There's great freedom in admitting it. My wife and I are, are amazed at how fast our kids are growing. They're really growing way too fast. And our, our older two, I've noticed, and even our youngest, who's only two, I've noticed a trend in them that most of the time they, they take what we say and they, they believe us and do it, but there is this little strain in them that has them taking about half of the instruction that we give and then shutting it off and then saying, I've got it, I know how to do it, and running to do it. Now, sometimes it makes, I'll, I'll confess, it makes me angry because I, you, that's fine to laugh at me, I'm a fool sometimes. It, I, I see them running in that direction, I'm like, those kids don't know what, what to do. But then, man, I, I read the book of Proverbs and I see verse seven of chapter one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. A fear of Yahweh, this relational God who speaks into our lives with his living words and wants to bring life and healing 
salvation. But then I read, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I am learning now at almost 38 years to look at the Lord and say, I am that fool so many times. What I see in my kids and the steps they take, I, I wanna love them well because how often is God so patient with me? And how gracious has he been with me so that by the time I get over into Proverbs chapter, I've got to find it. I'm in a Bible I don't usually have here because I couldn't find my other one because I always read this one. Um, chapter three. All right, very familiar. But verses 11 and 12. Here is what Proverbs is all about. It's all about a relationship between a son and his father that ultimately is designed to point us to how the fabric of the whole universe works. It is the creature submitting to God who determines that he will be a father to his children and that he will discipline them and lead them into life. And this is what it says, verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And I see this and I read later in chapter six that the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Young people hear that today, expect a whole lot to be corrected. That's just the way life works because ultimately it's to point us to God who in his great graciousness chooses to take our mistakes and even our sins and because he chooses to love us, corrects us and disciplines us for our good. Hebrews chapter 12 picks up on this very passage and repeats it in the New Testament. Now, how can God do this? How can Yahweh, who's been rejected by his people time and time again, do this? Ultimately, it's because he had a son who never disobeyed him and who kept all the law perfectly and yet was disciplined and punished for us. The book of Proverbs talks about the most wise man who ever lived. And if we have eyes to see him, we have eyes to see the coming wise man himself, who is the wisdom of God to us. It's Jesus Christ. So the principles of scripture are these. God has given us sacred writings. These are unlike anything else. Sacred means holy, set apart for God and set apart for us to know God. And scriptures have the power to change us. Over time, you read about being a fool enough, you're either gonna reject what you see or you're gonna say, I agree with that. I'm a fool and I need you, Lord. So that when later in the New Testament, you learn about repentance, you know, even kids can understand repentance. Do it this way. When you're teaching them, you can say repentance is like a military command. You're walking your own way. You're going the direction that you want to. You don't want God. And behind you, you hear, repent, and you turn. And it's got your attention. And the Christ is there. And he says, believe in me. We say, who are you to tell me to believe in you? I'm Christ the Messiah of God that you've been reading about and learning about all your life. 
This happened. This happened to Timothy. When Paul came into town and started presenting Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Timothy was ready. The Old Testament is so valuable to lead us into the sacred writings that have the power to change us because they're the very words of God and to lead us to Jesus Christ. I'll give you one more. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. Isaiah chapters 52, 53, 54, and 55, if you read them in their their whole, you learn about this suffering servant who would come and who would ultimately take the sins of the very people, as it it tells us in, in, in chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Before we even hear the word repent, we learn that We are walking away from God and we don't care what he thinks. And there had to be this person to come to stand between us and a holy God who had us condemned and his wrath pointing right at us and someone came and stood in the center of that. And we knew that somebody like that had to come, but he hadn't come yet. Somebody who was righteous, who actually had the name of righteous one. And so that in chapter 55, this appeal would actually make sense. Come, everyone who thirsts, verse one of chapter 55, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. That doesn't make any sense. How can you, if you're hungry or thirsty, go and buy bread and and go and buy milk, wine and milk when you don't have anything to pay with? But nonetheless, he tells you to come. The invitation goes out. It doesn't have to be that it makes sense to you. You come when you see your desperation and your need of someone to stand in between you and this holy God. And he says this, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? How how relevant is this for those of you who may have come today and you came to this church today Because your life over the past week or month has been terrible. You're looking for a quick fix. Now, recently my back went out and I I went to a chiropractor for help. Whatever your beliefs are about chiropractors, one helped me. And I realized something. Whatever got me there with a bad back had been a series of things that I had been doing wrong. And it was just the effects of time and gravity and sin on my back. But there are some things that I can do to change the way that I live. And so many of you may have come to this church today and your marriages are are suffering. Your kids are not obeying you. And you're getting desperate for a quick fix. I want you to understand that whatever brought you here and whatever brought the people to this point in Isaiah's ministry when he's preaching to them about the free offer of the good news, it's, it's, not, it's not enough to come and try to get a fix to the problem that you have and then to go back into your life and to keep living the way that you did before. You've got to realize that the things that ultimately bring you into the place where you're hearing God's word are the very things that 
must necessitate you admit you have no resources to make your life work. You have no money to get yourself out of your troubles. And without God changing you, you have no hope, period. And the Bible points this out to us when God says, why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And then he says, verse nine, for as high as the, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now the word of God, these convictions that we need to have, these are the very words of God. And you can see, even in the Old Testament, how the words of God go out and sound clearly so that all who will hear it can come to the Lord and receive from him alone what they could never buy and what they could never do to redeem themselves. All within the context of this one who was coming, this Christ so that by the time you get to the New Testament, if you turn to one more in Luke chapter 24. This story takes place after Jesus has died on the cross, after he was buried, and even after he has risen from the dead. But there are two men who are walking on the road that leads to a town called Emmaus, and it's called the Emmaus Road. As they are walking... They're talking amongst themselves to one another about all the things that have happened to Jesus in the past days, how he was crucified, given over into the hands of unrighteous men, how he was punished and killed on a cross and put in a tomb, and how all of their hopes went into that tomb with him. And so Jesus, secretly, unbeknownst to them, comes alongside them. And while they see a man suddenly walking with them, they don't know that it's Jesus, and he talks to them and questions them about what they're saying. And so by the time you get down to the end of the story, verse 25, Jesus then takes over and he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I see Jesus here coming along and giving these men an interpretive grid through which to read the Old Testament. And there's two parts to the grid. One is what reveals the sufferings of the Christ and what reveals the glories of the Christ and how those things fit into the grand scheme of God. And he takes that grid and goes back to Moses. Those are the books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the ones that you usually conk out halfway through once January comes around. But imagine Christ there with you, and you have eyes open to see the Christ 
back in the stories that are so familiar to us by now. But knowing he's not just there as the creator God, but he's being shown through types. He's being shown through signs. He's even making appearances and coming down to this earth so that others might know something about his character as he comes through the sacrificial systems that were put up, all pointing to the need for a perfect lamb who would come. You see, Jesus is not just someone that you add into your life. You don't just ask him, Jesus, come be a part of my life. You ask him, you say to him, Lord, I'm a fool. I've sinned against you. Be the Lord of my life, my king. This is what the Bible points us to. But he's such a gracious king who endured the suffering. He endured the suffering so that not only would he enjoy the glory to come, but he would wrap us up into it. Those of us who would come to him by faith alone, in him alone, in Christ alone. That is all by grace alone. As God allows you to see Christ in the scripture. So where does this leave us in the challenge at the end today? Here's what I would like you to walk away with. First of all, this book that we call the Bible is the very words of God. When you read it, it's not just men who have written things down. This is God speaking to you. But I can't convince you of that any more than I can convince my own kids of that as I read the Bible with them as they're still quite young. Are you convinced that these things are true? In my life, I have had many times when I felt I was about ready to give up and not continue, not abide with Jesus Christ. The very thing that I thought would provide no help is the very thing that sustained me, the holy scriptures. As I picked it up and read, and in desperation, when I realized I was a fool, cried out to Jesus Christ, Lord, help me, help me. Now today, some of you with kids are really trying to be faithful to read God's word, but you might be struggling to know how to do that. I confess that it's a, an ongoing challenge for me. I'm thankful for our little kids that do listen to the word of God when we break it up into bite-sized chunks for them. But I've had to confess to the Lord this week that oftentimes I have left that for my wife to do during the daytime and not made it a priority to do with my children either around the dinner table or in the morning when they wake up. And so the Lord's forgiven me for that, but some of you dads here today need to ask the Lord to forgive you. You need to ask the Lord to forgive you and to understand that the reproofs of discipline are the ways of life and that the Lord is so faithful to help you and I want to help you too, even as I need help. I have five books today that I want to give, give to five dads, whoever comes up here to get one first. They don't push each other over to get a free book because there are some stipulations, okay? And this isn't a gospel invitation, right? I have, you know, provided these, but at the same time, I have an expectation if you come and get one. First of all, you've got kids between the age of three and 12. That's really what this book is designed for. It's called Bible Reading with Your Kids. If you've got kids in that age range, 
Um, and if you don't get up here to get one, this is by John Nielsen. And its subtitle is A Simple Guide for Every Father. It's really short. These are actually five books, not one big one. All right, so those of you who don't like to read, well, you need to get used to reading. God has spoken to us with words. And we read words, all right? So here's the deal. If you come up to get one of these, you've got kids between three and 12. Second thing is, you need to keep in touch with me to let me know how it's going so that we can encourage each other. I'm serious about that. If you take one of these, expect to really keep in touch with me at some point within this next month to let me know how things are going. So come down and see me. Lastly, the encouragement that I can give every single one of us here today, pick up and read. Your convictions about the importance of the word of God have direct bearing on how long you last in the Christian faith. And I'm not saying I don't believe in once saved, always saved. I believe that once you're truly saved and God has wrought that work in your heart, you will continue in what you have learned and been firmly convicted of. The Lord will make that clear to you of your ongoing need. And it's a relationship with him that he sustains by continuing to speak into your life with his word. Next week, you come back again. We'll talk about how he does that and what that looks like in particular.